Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. It has been a little while. There has been uh, plenty of racing. With me are two uh, foreign uh, foreign travellers. Um, one, Neil Morrison, who went to Buriram. The other, uh, Steve English, who uh, was at San Juan Villicum, the new uh, circuit in Argentina for the first Argentinian round of uh, World Superbikes. Steve, what was, what was Argentina like? Well, as a foreign correspondent now, as, as we'll have to be referred to on the Paddock Pass podcast, I have to say Argentina was terrific. I've been down there quite a few times, whether it was for MotoGP or for other work, and uh, San Juan really left an impression on me. You're in the foothills of the Andes. You've got that in the background. We had snow on the top of the mountains, so it looked good for photos. We had a big crowd through the course of the weekend. The facilities were great. And given how nervous a lot of people were before this round, it really did uh, exceed expectations for the entire paddock. Yeah, I mean, new circuit, but the same old winner. Well, there's not uh, there's not a lot that you can do about that right now. Johnny Ray's just done that uh, form of his life, and he's got the advantage that just comes with consistency around him. If you look at the Superbike paddock at the moment, Ray's the only guy that's got a stable platform year in, year out. And whether it's at Kawasaki with Ray or Tom Sykes for the last few years. They've basically had the exact same crew around them for each year. That's why that's the most successful team on the grid right now. But we could easily see that change for next season. Yep, uh, well, we're looking forward to that. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Argentina in the second half of the show. Uh, first, we uh, head uh, either eastward or westwards, really. How do you get to Thailand from Argentina? You'd probably go west. Um, Neil Morrison, how was the very first MotoGP round in Thailand? Yeah, I think we could call it uh, a success. We had uh, 100,000 people in attendance on the Sunday. Um, very enthusiastic crowds. It definitely had uh, the flavour of a, you know something different, something quite unique be it the transport into the circuit or uh, the food that was available uh, at the track. Um, we also had, you know, three absolutely fantastic races, um, two of which I think were uh, quite critical in the destination or the ultimate destination of the, the championship. And um, in MotoGP, it was, what, the fifth closest Premier Class podium of all time? Um, and a race that went all the way down to the last corner. And yeah, certainly didn't disappoint. Yeah, I mean, there were, were sort of a few concerns about that the, the layout of the track didn't seem particularly challenging and wouldn't produce great racing. But in the end, I mean, we had, genuinely had three fantastic races. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, a lot of people would say that um, if you look at the layout on a piece of paper, it looks pretty straightforward, pretty boring. Um, but there's a few quite deceptively tricky corners on the track. Um, and it's really a track of two halves. You know, you've got the two huge straights in sector one and two and then you've got kind of twisty bits and um you know it seemed to open it up a little bit you had you know first part of the track which lent itself to the characteristics of the ducati a little bit the honda as well and then you had sort of twisty bits uh round the back edge of the circuit which uh, worked well for the yamahas and the suzuki and we saw really all of them up at the front uh, at some points fighting through the weekend so yeah, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's certainly no Mugello, no Phillip Island, but uh, I was yeah mildly surprised at, um, at at the racing that they produced. Yeah, I think it was Andrea Dovicioso who said um, you know everyone everyone thought this was going to be a Ducati uh, a Ducati track. Everyone was saying this is going to be a Ducati track, uh, but he knew all along that it wasn't going to be a Ducati track because there was only really the two there was the two straights of course, but then there was. Uh, a lot of those corners which were much more difficult for uh, for, for the Ducatis and where they had to work a lot harder. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, around those, uh, you know, those, uh, you know, parts in sector two, uh, three, and four. Um, and I think it was quite. That was where he was really struggling on the first day of free practice, but he managed to get it all hooked up by the Saturday. And uh, come the race, it was quite interesting to see that he was actually uh, quite a bit faster than Mark Marquez in the last sector as well. So, yeah, that puts pretty well for uh, the Ducati development that uh, has been going very, very uh, well uh, as of late. In the end, it did come down to uh, an absolutely fantastic battle in the last five laps between uh, uh, Andrea Dovicioso and Mark Marquez. This is one, another one of those races where Dovicioso was a little bit of a sleeper, where uh, he was never necessarily the fastest ever, uh, everywhere. But people, um, I think Mar uh, Mar Marquez said a couple of times, keep an eye on... Uh, on Dovi because he's uh, he's definitely faster than he looks. Uh, while everyone everyone was looking at um, uh, obviously Marcus was fast and the Yamahas were were really fast. And we'll talk about the Yamahas later on. Um, uh, but in the end, it was it, yeah, it really was a it, well those those last five laps were just fantastic between Marquez and and Dovicioso and and sort of illustrated. The difference between the bikes and the two different ways of, uh, of of riding, and that was what made it such a such a good uh, good race, I think. Yeah, exactly, and it's becoming a common occurrence, really. This, uh, I think, four times this has gone down to the last corner uh, for the last lap in the past, uh, just over a year. Um, and yeah, it was interesting because obviously the the roles were reversed in this instance. It was uh, it was Davizioso doing the, the kind of crazy last corner lunge, and Marquez managing to to pick it up and uh, square the corner off and uh, or drag him to the line. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's basically been the, the the story of the second half of this year. It's been Marquez against one of the factory Ducatis, either Lorenzo or, or Davizioso. And um, I mean, it's been, it's been fantastic. And it was, you know, boosted by, by the inclusion of the Yamahas, as you said. Um, and, I don't know. I think judging by judging by the last four or five race weekends, I can easily see this being a battle that we'll see at each weekend um, until Valencia in, uh, in mid-November. Yeah, I mean, because you look at the tracks coming up, we got um, uh, Mategi, where obviously last year we had a fantastic battle between uh, Dovicioso and Marquez. Uh, we've got Philip Island, which is clearly a Marquez track, but it's always a guarantee for great, great racing. Sepang, where well, well. Anything could happen. Looks, it looks like much more of a Ducati, of a Ducati track, but we don't know. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Valencia. It should be. It should be quite a quite a fun race at Valencia because obviously Lorenzo, who by then should be fit enough, uh, should be able to give a, uh, a really take the fight to to Marquez at his at his favourite track. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, we've said this quite a lot recently, but there are no real um, weak tracks remaining for Ducati. And uh, Marcus has proved this year that he's he's strong everywhere. Um, and it's just a question of how close uh, the Yamahas can get, whether that was a one-off performance, um, you know, the conditions basically working for them, or um, or whether they'll sort of revert back to Aragon mode at the next week, uh, race weekend. So, yeah, we'll have to see how, how Mategi pans out. Obviously, the big battle was between um, uh, Andrea Dovizioso and Mark Marquez, but there was one notable name who was absent, and that was Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, obviously, Lorenzo was um, injured in um, uh, in that first corner crash in 
uh, Aragon, which he still blames Mark Marquez for, um, uh, <laughs> which he spent all of his time saying, I don't want to make anything of this, but it was definitely Mark's fault. Yes, here's a 10-minute monologue on how it's Mark's fault. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That, I don't like to draw attention to this, but because you'll only blow it up into a big thing. But here's 10 minutes on why Mark is to blame. Um, uh, but yeah, ex exactly. Um, and it really, it, it, uh, well, he really wasn't very lucky in, in Thailand either, was he? It was, was it FP2 Two. that he had? I mean, a huge, huge crash. The rear of the bike just completely locked up and and just sort of spat him off in an old-fashioned high side. Yeah, it was a really ugly, ugly spill. Um, and it seemed that he had gone through quite, um, you know, quite a lot of effort to get there. Um, you know, he wasn't really letting on that there was too much else wrong with his body other than the uh, the toe that he dislocated and the other toe that he, he broke um, from the Aragon crash. Um, but you kind of got the impression that uh, he was still a wee bit stiff from that. And then to, uh, to have that crash, I mean, that was uh, it was a biggie. And, uh, you know, watching him trying to maneuver himself into the, the, the press debrief that uh, later that night, you could tell that he was in a bit of a bad way. Uh, contusion to uh, his right ankle, I think there was, and then also to his uh, to his wrist. Um, but uh, I've seen, you know, some photos of him on his Twitter page, and he does look like he's, um, you know, going through quite a bit of rehab and fully intends to be riding at Mategi. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a shame because I think he's another guy that would have been right in the mix, even if uh, Thailand was an unmitigated disaster for him um, back in February when we went there testing. Yeah, ab absolutely. The Ducati were very uh, quiet about the cause of the crash. They still haven't really said anything about it. Um, were there any rumours going around the paddock about what it might have been? Yeah, Ducati um, haven't confirmed anything, said uh, that they won't confirm anything, basically. That's just a closed matter as far as they're concerned in terms of how they, they will communi communicate it to uh, to the outside world, to the press. Um, but yeah, there were there were various theories. Um, I spoke to Paolo Chiabadi um, on Friday evening, and he said that it definitely wasn't an electronics issue, which um, meant it was probably either something to do with the transmission or the engine. Um, and there was uh, yeah, there was a bit of a rumor during the rounds that it was something to do with the engine or a part of the engine locking up because of the uh, the track temperatures just being a lot higher than people had expected. Um, because I think uh, Mitch Lum were saying at the test, track temperatures were, um, talking in Celsius, were high 40s. But um, for this weekend, it was even, even higher, maybe even 10 degrees uh, higher at some points. Um, <clears throat> so... And they were expected to be lower as well, because, you know, this is uh, around this time of year, is the rainy season, and we were expecting rain at some point through the weekend, but it was nothing but blue skies and, and uh, you know, searing the high track temperatures um, as early as, you know, 8, 9 a.m. So, uh, yes, yeah, so there was a bit of a rumour doing the rounds that it's something to do with the engine or some part of the engine had seized up, um, but uh, obviously nothing uh, confirmed as of yet. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked like a, I mean, it clearly looked like a mechanical failure because the the rear wheel just completely locked up and that, that is such a rare thing to happen nowadays um and certainly if the uh, you know if 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 the engine locks up then you can usually just well if you're quick enough you can try and sort of feather the clutch and pull that in but um uh, lorenzo didn't even have time to do that it was just spat absolutely uh, straight off steve you've been to buriram um what did uh, what were your impressions of the track and and how do you think this compared to a uh, to you know a, a round of world superbikes there well, the one thing about the round the world superbikes is everyone 
just goes to the bamboo bar. I think this week or that week in Bury Ram for the GP, it was a lot busier, so that would have been off limits. But uh, other than that, it seemed really similar to the Superbike Ryan. A big crowd, big atmosphere at the race, and uh, another successful weekend for MotoGP where they go to a new country and you're able to go to a ready-made fan base. That's the one thing about Thailand that we've seen time and again from Superbikes going there since 2015. The one thing that I thought was quite different was actually just how the race played out. Obviously, it was exceptionally warm for the MotoGP race. Track temperature was the highest they've seen in a long time. It was a little bit higher than, than what we usually see at the Superbike race. But it was interesting how with the Michelin tyres, the race panned out in comparison to a superbike race. Riders had to spend a lot of time just trying to be as slow as possible in the first half of the race. That's why we had the big bunch in the initial stages. And then as the race progressed, everyone tried to just bring their pace up a little bit. But it was it was interesting to look at the tactics of that compared to what we see in the superbike round there. I think over the course of the, the four years that we've gone there, Ray's been able to win six races and most of them have been runaway wins as well. I think the majority of his wins there have been by over three seconds. So it was a good comparison between how the race played out in the GP compared to what we typically see during a superbike race there. But uh, going back to the actual track as well, it's always quite interesting at Bury Ram because as Neil said, when everyone turned up at Bury Ram, they expect it to be one of the simplest tracks around because there's straight line braking, there's not too many corners that look like they should pose too much of a challenge for the riders. But in actual fact, there's a couple of corners where over the years in the Superbike class, we've seen riders able to pick up a lot of time through turn three, the hairpin at the start of the lap. And uh, if you took a wide line, you're able to use that to carry a lot more speed and be able to actually just stick out in the section of track that just gave an awful lot more grip. And sort of for the GP bikes you could see that there there was certain sections of the track where different bikes were playing to the different strengths of each other but also just like where your actual riding style was coming in so for a lot of those riders of course they would have watched the superbikes races they would have looked at how like for Jonathan Ray in year one in particular turn three was where he made up a lot of lap time but for everyone else since then in the superbike class they've sort of cottoned on to that but uh, for the GP, there was still a couple of sections where you could see different riders trying different things to get a bit of an advantage for their, their one lap. Uh, but then going into the race, you could see just the, where each rider had to try and be strong. As Neil said, first section, the Ducati was strong. Second half of the lap, the Honda was strong. So it was just about who was able to use their bike in the right places. There's a good point about turn three because I noticed that as well, that there was sort of a couple of really distinct styles through that. You could sort of try and sort of hold it tight you know break her break late and hold it tight and there were others who were almost using like a an outside berm around that corner which is why perhaps we also saw a couple of you know a couple of people having to go there certainly it was as you say it always takes a few races for people to sort of unlock the unlock the secrets but the secrets you only really uh sort of figure out once you're uh, race speed, I suppose, and uh, uh, I think we'll we saw a little bit of that in Argentina as well. But we'll come back to that in the second half of the show, as we said uh, when when we talk about the World Superbike race. The one thing which was a surprise was the strength of the Yamahas. No one was expecting, you know, at Aragon we were talking about, you know, how long about a completely disastrous year, and yet uh, and yet we saw at least one Yamaha on the, on the podium and uh, with Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi. Uh, I mean, if he hadn't had to break so hard in the, uh, in the final corner, then, you know, they would have, 
he would have crossed the line within sort of you know a couple of tenths of uh, a couple of tenths of the winner. Yeah, and Zarko was fifth as well. You know, just I think just over two seconds back. So you know, Yamaha's third, fourth, and fifth. Um, a remarkable recovery, and on paper, this should have been another terrible track for them because the two factory guys really struggled at Burr, um, um in the in the preseason test. Ridiculously high track temperatures. Um, Plus a couple of corners. I think the final turn, turn one and uh, turn three, you're basically going on to a very long straight uh, or a sizable straight um, from you know low gear. Um, so it, uh, it it didn't look good for the guys. I think Vignella said on Thursday that he had zero expectations ahead, looking ahead to the weekend. Rossi didn't sound that much more positive um, when he was talking up his chances. Yet they were they were there. Not just speed, but, you know, right there until the end of the race. I think Vinales was uh, just over two tenths back um, off the race winner. And, um, you know, had had his, his strongest showing, I think, since, well, maybe this year, in fact. Yeah, probably this year. Um, yeah, since uh, probably sometime in 2017. So, yeah, it definitely was a bit of a turn up for the books. Did the Yamaha guys have a an explanation for their sudden sort of spurs of performance uh it was it the tires is it the electronics uh changes is it, it was it just the nature of the track uh yeah i think you have to look at all three of those things combined together um Vinales on friday said they had made a, a pretty drastic setup change with the bike um a change that they should have made a couple of months ago you know that uh, in a direction that they'd never gone before um Yet, I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg, who's the rider coach on that side of the garage on Sunday, and he said, actually, it was a pretty small change that we made that just had a pretty big impact. Um, they're obviously continuing work on electronics, um, as has been the case pretty much uh, in the second part of this year, with varying degrees of success. Um, but I think one of the big things was the, the Michelin tires, um, because... Basically, Mitchell have to decide on the allocation for each race weekend um, back in March, I think it is, just before the season starts. And they therefore predicted, um, they looked at the normal weather conditions in October in Buriram, northeast Thailand. And they figured that it would be track temperatures of 45, 46 degrees, a little lower than the, the test, when in fact they were 10 degrees higher. Um, so they strongly advised, strongly recommended, I think, were, were Mitchell's words, uh, riders not to use the medium rear tire they had to well they strongly recommended them to use the the hard rear um and strangely the hard rear was having excessive spinning in a straight line rather than um having excessive wear on the sides of the tires so they found that the our riders found that the rear tire was spinning up in fifth sixth gear you know towards the end of that back straight um, and yeah. on the way to turn three and down the way to turn four as well so if you think that yamaha obviously high corner speed bike makes up a lot of time, spends a lot of time on the edge of the tyres, whereas, you know, uh, a bike like the Ducati is kind of square the corner off. Um, the fact that the edge grip wasn't as badly affected as the centre, um, it seemed that that not only gave the Yamaha's a bit of an advantage, but it took away some of the strengths of the Ducati and the Honda as well. Um, and I think that definitely had a, had a big part to play in, uh, in their sort of resurgence. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting what Cal Crutchlow said. And, you know, the reason that he felt he went backwards was because, you know, he was trying to carry as much corner speed as possible. Or, you know, he, he, he's trying to save the tyre by picking by picking the bike up and avoiding the corner speed. But that was actually making things worse because he was destroying the middle of the tyre sort of much faster. Whereas, uh, you know, Marquez was um, 
trying to carry more corner speeds to preserve the middle of the tyre, which again I suppose is a is, is a sign of of you know a smart rider understanding what's uh, uh, what's needed. Um, to come back to Yamaha, there was obviously uh, obviously there was the the electronics. They've had sort of some electronics updates. Um, the electronics updates. I think both Vinales and and Rossi have been quite positive about it, but not. They haven't said it's a huge step forward, but you know, it, it, it's all these sort of small steps which which help uh, a little bit. Steve, a lot of this is put down to Michele Gada, who uh, worked in World Superbikes for the Passi Yamaha squad, or well, for Yamaha Europe, sort of, uh, and so for the Passi Yamaha squad indirectly. What can you tell us about Michele Gada? I mean, obviously. Because Yamaha have made a fairly big step forwards this year in, in in World Superbikes as well. Yeah, for Gada, he was hired from Ducati, where he was pretty instrumental in turning the Panigale around with his electronic strategies. He was working with Chaz Davis, I think, at the time. Moved to pa- moved to Yamaha because he wanted to be able to take more of a global role rather than just being an electronics engineer. So he he became more of a project manager for the electronics department within the Yamaha World Superbike program. So he worked between Vandermark and Lowe's rather than with an individual rider. And um, he's always been very highly regarded. And obviously as a Yamaha Europe employee, he was asked over the summer to come in and try and help with the MotoGP program. He wasn't in Argentina. I've been told that he will be in Japan for the MotoGP. So it's an indication of just where the, the resources are now being spent for bringing Gata across to the GP team a, a bit more full-time rather than what it is right now. So there's a, a void to be filled in the superbike side because it does look like Gata has made that switch over. What I found interesting, just going back to what Neil was talking about as well, about some of the factors for Yamaha this weekend, and what I find interesting in Thailand, and we'll get a good indication of, of it in Motegi as to whether or not they've actually made progress, is Buriram was probably the closest grid that we've seen all the way through this season. I think in the qualifying session, there was only, I think, half a second from from first to 10th. I think it's only Saxon ring this year that was any closer than that. So this was a track where a tenth of a second makes a big difference in terms of where you're going to finish in in the qualifying session. And, and if it's only a tenth of a second that's making that difference, in a race, you can stick with people as well. So did we get a true indication that Yamaha's turned the corner? I don't think we've gotten that yet from Buriram. I think that they made a step for themselves in Buriram, but Motegi's going to be the test to see whether or not that's actually a step that's relevant for other tracks. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with uh, the the fact that, that uh, you know, one swallow does not make a summer. We will have to wait to see what happens at... Uh, uh, what happens at Motegi will get, get a much, much better, a uh, much better idea of it. But as you've both said, there were lots of factors there. The uh, the the fact that the tyres um, were slightly different, the fact that um, uh, the uh, riding style actually suited the Yamaha, and they weren't burning up the middle of the tyre like the like the other uh, the other bikes were. Uh, that made a difference, and also just uh, perhaps also the the conditions, the fact that it was such uh, uh, such a very very different such very different conditions than were than were expected and so you know the tires we were operating on the very fringes of the uh, of sort of the the tires operating window and that um uh that meant uh, put everyone at a disadvantage and that might have uh, sort of helped helped yamaha a little bit i know that uh, danny pedrosa was also quite upset about the uh, about well as he said being forced to uh race the hard tire right uh, right neil yeah exactly yeah, he was pretty 
uh, pretty miffed um, because he felt great with the, the medium uh, rear tyre through free practice. And in fact, his pace was, was really good. A couple of riders were pinpointing him as a guy that was going to be challenging at the front on Sunday, um, Marquez and Crutchlow included. Um, but uh, yeah, he um, was just couldn't get the same feeling with the hard. He made some claims that it took him, you know, five laps to put some heat into the hard rear, which was a comment that was somewhat, uh, well, obviously it wasn't ridiculed. Met with some scepticism? It, it was met with scepticism, there we, there we go, by uh, someone that may be involved with uh, with Mitchell and, um, because, you know, track temperature is upward in the region of uh, 50 degrees, um, w- taking such a time to, to warm up the tyre. Um, might seem slightly ridiculous but let's say he didn't have the feeling that he needed um at the start of the race compared to the other guys who were able to just go from the uh, from the off um but Pedroza did have really good pace and he did have pace which suggested he could have possibly won that race when he crashed out um and it wasn't just an opportunity to break his podium duck which has been ongoing uh, throughout 2018 it was a chance to maybe even win um, and uh, you know, continue that record uh, of winning every single year in Grand Prix since two thousand and two, going all the way back. Yeah, um, I think I think every year it's been Grand Prix. Was it two thousand one? Yeah, Aston yeah. two thousand one was the first one, I think. Okay, right. Um, but you know, um, yes, it was. Uh, it, that was a, a bitter pill to swallow. You know, Pedroza has been um, has has been in the doldrums recently, um, and that was a real chance to. To at least get something positive um, from his, uh, you know, from this last year racing, it was two thousand and two. Two thousand two was his first. His first. Two thousand and two was that. Yeah, I'm disappointed in myself, Big Neil. I let myself <laughs> down. I let you down. I let you down as well, Dave. That's all right. That's I'll all never right. forgive myself for that. How did he not have a po- I thought he had a win that year. Yeah, just had a couple Elias. of podiums that year. It was Tony Elias that year that was. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it must. Yeah, it was. Was that Elias's first Grand Prix win? Maybe. Anyway, and I we have digre- to check that. We digress. We digress. <laughs> it was his, yes. it was his first Grand Prix win because then wasn't the fault wasn't Aston Danny's first Grand Prix win. It was O two. Yeah. There you go. The MotoGP Memory Trust is uh, reassembles to challenge one another with obscure facts. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting mine down to the jet lag for not getting that one right. <laughs> It's funny because I was going to use the exact same excuse if I got mine wrong, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Neil. Yes, sorry, Dave. Uh, Just one other thing. Going back to Yamaha, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, Vinales made some very interesting comments on Friday at uh, at Barura to Italian television. Um, And these weren't, um, I guess they were sort of maybe not picked up so much in, uh, in the, you know, the, the English speaking media. Um, but he was sort of calling Yamaha out and saying that things are basically, there's been times this year where he feels like he's been forgotten about, um, times when he's needed a hug and no one has been there to, to make him feel wanted, um, to make his opinion feel valued. Um, and it feels like the disaster of Aragon aside, this is Vinales kind of making his pitch to Yamaha to say, look, uh, we need to follow my direction. You followed Rossi's direction all year and look at the mess we're in. Um, and um, I think if you look at Valentino's attempts to pass Vinales at the last corner, I mean, it was pretty desperate stuff. And he was pretty lucky not to take both of them down. In fact, incredibly yeah. lucky. And I think that's something that we're going to really need to watch in the, the final four races because essentially... Um, 
I know this is always the case, but it does seem that Vinales is really fired up and knows that if he wants to take development in his direction, he essentially needs to hand Rossi his rear end to him in uh, the final four races. And it seems that he was kind of making that pitch on on Friday, saying to Yamaha, come on, uh, listen to me, uh, show me some love, show me some respect, and uh, we can maybe get ourselves out of this. Um, so interesting, interesting. There are also rumours about Yamaha um, uh, basically warning him, telling him not to speak out anymore because he'd been quite outspoken about the bike and about his treatment and so on. It's one or two rumours about um, who Maverick will be allowed to bring into the garage next year. Um, Yamaha wanted to have a greater say on that. Um, so I don't know, there's uh, some conflicting messages going around and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, whenever you speak to uh, people who used to work for Yamaha, um, then they will, what they always say, you know, the problem is Valentino. The problem is the power that Valentino Rossi has in that garage. Rightly, obviously, he's uh, he absolutely deserves it. But then sometimes you wonder when you do have a situation like this where you have two riders going in different directions, do you trust the the, the do you trust the veteran, uh, someone with a proven experience, or do you choose or do you choose the you know the younger rider, um, the rider who has a clear idea of what he wants to do with the bike and who might be able to to, to move the project forward if if you allow things to go in a, go off in a different. Uh, uh, in a different direction, so it's um, uh, it, it's always one of those. It's one of those dilemmas. It's always uh, an interesting challenge, I think, certainly for for Yamaha and that whole situation. And it, it's hard to see how the uh, how this carries on. It can't carry on the way that it is carrying on. Something has to change. And the question is what and when. And mm. uh, I suppose we'll see by the end of the year. Yeah, whether that'll be in the factory or in the team itself, the personnel on the team. Um, yeah, I mean it's going to be it's going to be interesting, as you say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we will probably know a little bit more at Valencia once uh, people start uh, moving in and out of garages, because obviously the um, uh, there'll be a new satellite Yamaha team, and there will be people moving over there, and uh, we should see a little bit of a reshuffling of personnel. So, so we shall see. Right. Well, that will. Uh, uh, I think that will do for our look back at uh, Thailand. Uh, what are we expecting of uh, Mategi? I mean, is it going to be Dovi versus Marquez again? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, possibly with Lorenzo thrown in there. Um, Crutchlow, Pedroza, possibly. Um, maybe a little smattering of Petrucci for good measure. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, as as is the case in Japan quite normally um, a lot of, you know comes down to the weather and uh, it'll be interesting to see obviously we had three terrible days there last year uh, three wet days so it might depend on that but I think you know Marquez and Davizioso can be can be you know certified um, favourites to start the race weekend yeah I mean I took a look at the <coughs> weather forecast recently and it looked like it was going to be uh, actually quite pleasant when I think it's been a very very long time since we had uh, you know a completely dry weekend at, um, uh, at Mategi so that will certainly be interesting be interesting to see how that all uh, how the whole thing works so right well we should take a break and when we come back we shall talk to Steve about Argentina This is David Emmett. Together with Neil Morrison, Stephen English and Jensen Beeler, 
We are the Paddock Pass Podcast. If you enjoy Paddock Pass Podcast, then you can support us in everything we do. Go to patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast and sign up and you'll get access to exclusive content. Welcome back. Two weeks ago, we had uh, the first MotoGP race in Thailand. This weekend, we had the first World Superbike round in Argentina. Steve, tell us about it. I mean, you were talking about it earlier, uh, an amazing experience. And yeah, I mean, it reminded me on TV, it reminded me a lot, a lot of uh, Miller Motorsports Park in Utah with the backdrop of the mountains. It looks absolutely uh, fantastic. And you're saying the, um, the facilities were just outstanding. Yeah, the one thing about uh, the track in San Juan, as you said, David, it reminded a lot of people of Miller Motorsports Park. And talking to Jake Gagne, he was talking in terms of just being able to look back at the mountains. And uh, it did remind him from his days racing there as well in Moto America. And a lot of riders made some comparisons between it and other tracks that we've raced at, whether it was Russia in the twisty section at the end of the lap or some riders saying that there was parts of the track that reminded them of Misano and Istanbul as well so for all the riders they pretty much to a man really enjoyed riding on the track all of them said that when the grip starts to really come in next year whenever it's had a year of bedding in that they'd expect it to be really a really exciting track next year um in terms of just actually going to Argentina as well it's really positive for the Superbike World Championship to tick off another another country on the list that's the i think it's the 25th country that world sbk has gone to over the years and it's their first venture down into south america and was definitely a, a really successful one and as you said coming off the back of MotoGP going to bury ram it was i think the fourth time in history that MotoGP and world superbikes have had back-to-back races at new venues the track itself, I mean, it's, it's quite a long way in the west of Argentina, but then it's also quite close to Chile. Where where, where were the fans from? Was it mostly Argentinians or was it uh, uh, people from all over, all over South America? Well, with Taddy Mercado on the grid, there was a lot of Argentines in the crowd, but there were fans from Ecuador. Like I saw license plates from Chile, Ecuador, Brazil, Argentina, obviously, and uh, a couple of other South American and Central American countries. And a lot of fans just taking the time to drive down or ride down and uh, you had a, a really unique atmosphere from it. Uh, it was like, as as Neil would know from going to Termos, there's a, a very passionate crowd in South America for racing, but uh, just to be able to have one of their own to cheer on as well with Taddy Mercado certainly gave it a different element compared to the MotoGP race. The track seemed to take a little bit of time to, to rubber in as well. It seemed to change a lot. Uh, over the over the course of the of the day certainly certainly between sort of like friday and, and saturday yeah well they found 10 seconds on friday alone just from the track bedding in and uh, clearing a line like the track was brand new like uh, as i said earlier on everyone went to argentina without knowing what to expect because we'd seen pictures we'd seen footage but we didn't actually know how complete the facility was going to be and when we turned up everything was ready but it was very dirty, very dusty on the racetrack. And that led to there being a really narrow line all the way around the circuit. And talking to some riders after Friday, they said through the fast kink at the end of the straight, it's third gear left hander. And uh, they said that the line of rubber was around about 12 inches wide at that point. So you're coming through there, third gear. And if you were a little bit offline, 
it ended up just putting you on the underground, and that's what we saw with Chaz Davis in race one. Yes, I mean it. Uh, it was a pretty tough race for for Davies. It wasn't too bad a, a weekend for Ducati overall, but it was particularly. Um, uh, it it didn't really change the outcome, did it? I mean, Jonathan Ray turned up, and despite being sick on Sunday, he wins both of them. I think that's what ten in a row now. Yeah, ten in a row. So another historic mark for Jonathan Ray with the most consecutive wins in World SBK history. He's just after wrapping up a fourth World Championship, and you know, as we've seen over the four years where he's been with Kawasaki, Ray's just been able to get himself to the front of the field and win races. This was as tough as it gets from though because the track in Argentina with such a narrow line to try and make moves was always going to be a challenge. But uh, Ray was able to, despite making a lot of mistakes in the early couple of laps, still able to make his way through the field. Yeah, and, and again, I suppose it proves that uh, how how well that team, I mean, it's not just about uh, about Jonathan Ray, the team, how well the team prepared uh, prepared for it because they you know, they got the bite absolutely spot on for uh, for Ray on Sunday. Yeah, well, the one thing and, about and it... And on Saturday. Yeah, and the, the one thing about it for Ray, like I talked about it at the start of the show, there's so much change in the Superbike paddock that uh, whether it's new bikes coming in or new riders joining new teams or crew chiefs changing or different elements within the team changing, but at KRT, it's been so stable over the last four years for Ray and over the last seven or eight years for Tom Sykes. They've both had the same crew chiefs for their time with Kawasaki and for Ray at least he's had the same mechanic, data engineer, suspension engineer uh, and for Sykes most of the guys on his side of the box have been the same for eight years as well. So with that stability comes just the ability to know what the others are expecting and be able to prepare well for pretty much any eventuality and just having that confidence in each other makes a big difference. Like for for me this weekend, I had to interview Jonathan for his his world champions interview. And as we're sitting there filming the interview, his mechanics are just looking on, just to see see what Johnny's up to. And they're sitting on the on the floor just beside the camera, watching on like their fans as much as anything else. And it's that close knit nature of the team that really shines through over the year for Ray. When winning a lot, that helps a lot as well. It's a lot easier to build a team when uh, when there's so much success around. But, I mean, Jonathan Ray has always struck me as a very intelligent rider who listens and, and, and you know, he who, who listens and can explain things clearly. Yeah, the one thing for Ray is that the adaptability has always been the biggest strength for him since he joined Kawasaki. Ray's riding style seems to have just an inbuilt level of adaptation in it and that's what sort of allows him to as a race progresses still maintain his strength or if there's an issue with the bike work around that problem and some of that comes from his motocross background and uh, some of it just comes from how he's had to develop as a rider when you talk to Chris Pike who was his crew chief whenever he was at Tenkata Honda he always talks about one of the key strengths for Ray was when the bike wasn't good Chris would just tell him the bike's not good you're going to have to make up the difference yourself and Ray would just go out there and he won 14, 15 times for Honda, even when the bike wasn't at a level that his teammates were able to challenge for race wins. It's obvious that things are going really well. And you, ju- you only really have to compare his uh, his results with Tom Sykes to see that, that it's more to it than just, you know, the, the Kawasaki being strong. Yeah, and the that's the one thing that uh, is coming up more and more now as well is the comparison between himself and Sykes because we're looking at the rider market for next year. There's still a lot of riders unsigned. And Sykes obviously a former world champion but there's a lot of people within the paddock wondering what sort of money to offer him because 
he's not a world champion anymore in terms of what he's been able to do over the last four years against Ray. He's had four years of being hit over the head by his teammate. So a lot of teams now trying to understand what level he's at. And Sykes is still in demand for next year, but he's definitely not going to get the money that he would have warranted a couple of years ago. And it's that comparison between Ray and Sykes really has been more and more pronounced over the course of the last couple of years because as the regulations have changed, they've hurt Tom far more than they've hurt Jonathan. And Tom hasn't been able to bring his style to the fore. And that's probably helped Jonathan hurt Tom in terms of the the standings over the last few years. And now it's going to be interesting to see where Sykes ends up for next year and whether or not he's able to adapt to a new bike. Because we've pretty much only ever seen him on a Kawasaki in World SBK. He did a year on a on a Yamaha. He raced a Suzuki and BSB as well. But for since 2012 or 2011, we've pretty much only seen him at the front on a Kawasaki. Yeah, I mean, is Tom Sykes now the holdup in 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 a sort of in the rider market? Because it seems like in MotoGP we're just about settled. Everyone everyone knows whether they'll be riding next year. Uh, World Superbikes, uh, they, there seem to be so many seats still open, and only a few few really is uh, really settled. And we saw uh, you know Marco Melandri second in uh, was it second in race one and third in race uh, in race two. He doesn't have a ride next year. Chavi Forrest doesn't have a ride next year and he ends up on the podium it seems like a it seems like a strange situation at the moment yeah Melandry with a pole and two podiums and he's talking about retirement because he doesn't want to sit around and make up the numbers next year he wants to be on a bike that can win races uh, for Melandry that might be a Moto America as uh, there is some talk about a move to maybe the Yamaha one of the Yamaha squads out there whether it's to Graves Yamaha or to the Attack Yamaha top motorsports team that uh, Josh Heron rides for as his teammate. But there's some discussion about where Melandri ends up in Moto America now. But there isn't any discussion about where he ends up in World Superbikes. You mentioned Fares. He's had podiums the last two rounds. He's been strong for the start of the year and the end of the year. But the middle of the season he went missing. So there's that question to answer about what happened to Fares during that part of the year. But he's definitely talking to some teams, whether it's Honda for a move to Triple M or to the Red Bull Honda team, whether it's a move to, to someone else like MV Augusta. He's definitely had some discussions with pretty much everyone that has a bike available. But uh, for Fares, it's still a case of wait and see. For Sykes, is he the holdup? Probably not. The biggest holdup is we don't know what bikes people are going to be running next year. The Sean Muir racing team, they're currently walk, uh, Milwaukee Aprilia's. But uh, there's a big question mark as to who their title sponsor will be next year and what bikes they'll run. They're still talking to Aprilia. Aprilia have, have apparently said that uh, it's either SMR or bust for them in World Superbikes. If they don't uh, come to an agreement with Sean, they'll probably leave the paddock next year. Uh, Muir is talking to the likes of Ducati and BMW as well. If he goes to BMW, you'd imagine that Marcus Reiderberger becomes part of that deal as well. BMW has always backed Reiterberger. He's won the Stock 1000 Cup for them this year. So you'd imagine he takes one seat and then you end up with a bit of a hold up to see whether or not Muir ends up taking Sykes or Laverty. Whichever one of them doesn't get the ride, you'd imagine they'd be at the top of the list for for a Honda ride. But there's a lot of dominoes that need to fall for that. There's questions about the second Yam- or the second Yamaha team for next year. The GRT Yamaha squad from Supersport have been openly talking about the fact that they want to move up to a superbike for next year, but they don't have the budget for it just yet. Who, If they can move up, 
Are they going to run one bike or two? Are they going to have... Are they going to lease four bikes from Yamaha or is it going to be two bikes that are 2019 spec and two bikes that are 2018 spec? What are they going to do in terms of riders? There was a lot of talk that they were going to have Sandro Cortese, who looks like he's in a position to win the world championship in Qatar. Of course, he's the championship leader. So is Cortese going to move up with that team? Is Lucas Mayas going to move up? Is Federico Caracasulo going to move up? It looks more like Mayas, we thought going into the weekend, Mayas was going to be the rider to move up. But it looks like he might be staying in uh, Supersport for next year. And and there's just so many questions about what's going to happen. Yeah, um, the, the other big question is what the what the new Ducati V4 is going to do. We saw it, uh, it did a, a couple of laps at BSB, at the uh, final round of BSB this weekend. What are you hearing in the World Superbike paddock about the performance of the bike and the expectations of the bike? Because it must be tempting for a lot of teams if they think it's going to be really quick. Well, the one thing that we all know about the Ducati is, as standard, it's the highest revving bike out there. It's, I think it revs to 16, over 16,000 revs. So when you talk to people that have seen the race spec bike, even over the course of the weekend, we were chatting to Ollie Rushby about uh, what he saw at Brands Hatch. Ollie, of course, is the uh, BSB reporter for MCN, and he was talking just in terms of this looks like a MotoGP bike. It's still styled like a Panigale Superbike, but underneath the skin it's uh, very much a gp bike and that's a bike that uh, obviously for gg jolinia he wants that bike to succeed he's always loved the superbike championship and he certainly wants to see it where ducati's able to have a success there as well that bike you would expect will be strong you'd expect that whether it's with davis and bautista on the factory bike or Whoever will run the the Barney machine, that looks like it's probably going to be Michael Rubin Rinaldi. So those three riders you'd expect to be able to get to the front of the field. There's talk about who else will run a Ducati next year. As I said, Sean Muir has had discussions with them. But as far as I've been told, the deadline for making a change to a Ducati for next year has now passed. So unless the contracts were signed in Argentina, it's looking unlikely that we're going to see anyone else make a change to Ducatis because one team that had been rumoured about that was the Altea team of course they won a world championship with Carlos Checa but uh, ever since then they've really struggled so whether or not they're able to make a change back to Ducati again remains to be seen but uh, in terms of anyone else what happens with the Aruba Ducati junior team that Rinaldi's been on this year? Are they going to continue at the European rounds next year? There's been a, a few rumours around the paddock linking a, a couple of different riders to that seat for next year. So maybe there's something there that will have four Ducatis on the grid next year. So we're not really going to find out very much about uh, sort of, uh, you know, 2019 in World Superbikes until maybe even after Qatar, maybe even sort of the first test at Jerez. Yeah, well, the one thing about it is the decisions have to be made pretty soon. Like the one thing that is the deadline for Ducati is when they can supply bikes and parts. So that's why they need to know by this week whether or not they've got any additional teams next year. I think what will happen is we'll get one announcement and basically everything else will just fall into place straight away after that and we'll mm-hmm. have a lot of riders signing with teams teams finalizing their budgets with sponsors and then the bikes that they'll run 
Right, fantastic. That will do for that section. Uh, when we come back, we shall uh, have our little uh, uh, MotoGP monologues and now with added superbike soliloquy, um, uh, trademark uh, Steve English. Uh, I'm not and... taking the blame for this one, Dave. <laughs> and then we shall have our winners and uh, our winners and losers. Hi, this is David Emmett. Together with Neil Morrison, Steve English and Jensen Beeler, we are the core of Paddock Pass Podcast. If you enjoy Paddock Pass Podcast, then please think about signing up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast. Patreon will give you exclusive access to rider interviews and other content, and it will help ensure the future of the show. So, if you enjoy what we do, you can help support us by going to patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast and signing up. Right, welcome back. The final part of the podcast is here, and uh, we shall kick off with our MotoGP monologues, although... Um, uh, as there is quite a lot to talk about for uh, World Superbikes, it's going to be Superbike soliloquies. Uh, so we'll start off with you, Steve. Um, let's see. Uh, Jonathan Ray, four four titles in, in a row, four World Superbike titles in a row. Um, first rider to win 10, uh, 10 races in a row. Is he the greatest World Superbike rider of all, uh, of all time? You have... 60 seconds. I think it's easy to look at the stats, Dave, and just say, yes, Jonathan Ray is the greatest rider in superbike history. But for me, it's still just a bit too stats-based for Ray. I think if you look at it, 70 race wins, four titles, 10 wins in a row. He's got uh, he's led more laps than anyone else. He's got second most career points. But for me, it's still Troy Bayless that just edges him out. And Bayless just about gets that edge for me just by virtue of the fact that he did it over a prolonged period. He came back from MotoGP and was still able to win a Superbike title. And I think that when you look at the eras that Dave, that uh, Bayless came through, I still think he's the greatest Superbike rider of all time, particularly when you factor in his successes in BSB as well, where he was champion in BSB. If I was to pick either of them, I'd pick Bayless. I couldn't fault anyone that would pick Ray, but I think until Ray wins maybe one more title, I'll still have it as Troy Bayless as the greatest superbike rider of all time. A whole generation of Brits will be directing their ire toward you, Steve, those Brits that stood <laughs> uh, on the banks of Brands Hatch in the mid-90s. Well, Not just... even mentioning Carl Fogarty. Indeed. On the other hand, he will receive a hero's welcome when he goes to Australia in the, uh, in the spring. Well, in fairness, if you pick Ray or Bayless, you're going to get a good reaction from the Phillip Island crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 indeed, indeed. I'm not too Actually, sure what, what, what reaction I'll get about five miles up the road after making that statement, but I'll still <laughs> stick to Bayless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was quite surpressing because I I ran a poll on Twitter um, for the best, you know, who's the greatest world superbike rider of all time. Uh, there were some interesting uh, suggestions in there, but it, it was basically uh, both Ray and Bayliss were tied. And I was surprised that around 36%, I think something like 35, 36%. And um, uh, Carl Fogarty was the runner up with 24%. And I was quite surprised that he scored so, he didn't score so 
so well. I thought I thought he would be right up there with uh, with Ryan Bayless. Yeah, well, for me, even whenever I wrote the article for you, Dave, just after Ray had won the championship, and you were looking back at the the numbers and the eras and the different elements that went into it, into Foggy's era. I was looking through it and I was thinking like, I remember loving superbikes at that stage and it was great racing all the way through it. But when I looked into it a little bit more, I was looking at it thinking like the depth there wasn't really that different to what Ray's up against now. I think it was probably a little bit deeper, but I also don't think that Chaz Davis or Tom Sykes or, you know, any of those riders are any less talented than what Foggy was going up against for most of his career. I thought, actually, whenever I looked through some of the record books, some of the more impressive, well, not more impressive riders, but some of the impressive riders in superbike history also was the likes of Ben Spees, whether it was Spees' championship year or even his motor in his AMA days. I think if you factor those titles and his success over there against Matt Maladden, he's also one of the best superbike riders we ever saw. Yeah, for sure. And what he did in his debut year, I think that really makes Ben stand out. The fact that he was going up against Haga and what was supposed to be Haga's, you know, championship year with the with the, the, the Ducati squad at that time. Um, I, I think, yeah, that's a good choice. They've thrown Spies in there too. Also Colin Edwards. I mean, you know, what Colin Edwards went on to achieve in Grand Prix, he never quite won a MotoGP race, but was, uh, you know, a consistent player for a couple of years there. And... Um, you know, he was in that golden age of superbikes, you could say, and basically took on, took on them all, and uh, and beat them. You know, he won. He beat Bayless in two thousand and two when you know Bayless was operating at the height of his powers. Yeah, and I think for like Edwards, it's easy to overlook the fact he he didn't win in MotoGP. If he had stayed in World Superbikes, he would have won another couple of titles. And for Jonathan Ray. He had some opportunities to go to the Grand Prix paddock. He stayed in World Superbikes, and he's been able to break pretty much every record i'm sure he'll end up taking the points record from i think it's courser holds it at the minute and he'll be able to finish his career with every record intact in his name and once he's done that then it's going to be very difficult to be able to overlook him or to say someone else was a better superbike rider yeah, I mean, yes, yeah. There were a lot of uh, a lot of names banded about. Certainly, uh, Ben Spees. You have to uh, include him, even though he was only in World Superbikes for uh, for such a brief period. But um, uh, a lot of a lot of great riders in there. I know I should only have had had a minute on a superbike soliloquy, but <laughs> in fairness to, like, as I mentioned about Spees and winning his American titles, Foggy, of course. Uh, multiple Formula One world champion, an Isle of Man TT senior winner as well. So, yeah. like his credentials on a Formula One machine and a, and a world SBK machine definitely should be taken into consideration as well. Yeah, and you, when you look at Fogarty's performances when he was in 500 as well, I mean, they were pretty impressive. He had uh, that half season on the the, the sort of semi-privateer NSR in 1990, I think it was, and he didn't disgrace himself by any means. He was scoring top 10 finishes, um, his sort of one-off wildcard appearances at the British Grand Prix. I mean, he damn nearly got a podium finish in 93. Um, the year before, I think he was running the top six before crash night. I mean, you know, he he could have been a really good 500cc rider as well. Plus what you were saying, Steve, is his prowess on, uh, you know, the F1 TT championships and the TT and the Northwest, as a matter of fact, you know, one double um, superbike race at Northwest, I think in 93, you know, Fogarty was just a fantastic all-rounder, a world endurance champion, of course, as well. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, like, if you look at those three riders, you can make a ca- you can make a case for any of them, and you're 100% right. But <laughs> for me, as it stands today, I'd still pick Bayless, whether or not I'd pick that in 
two weeks time after the Qatari round <laughs> would be a different story but it's one of those ones where trying to pick who's the who's the best out of those three it's it's, it's a tall task I mean these are all legends of the sport um, no doubt about that uh, masters of their discipline and of the sport um, in Thailand there were more comparisons made uh, of legends of the sport uh, there was I think Mela Chercoles the Spanish journalist was comparing um, uh, the rivalry between Andrea Dovizioso and Marc Marquez to uh, Wayne Rainey and Kevin Schwantz um, uh, your chosen subject, uh, Neil Morrison, is uh, Andrea Dovizioso and Mark Marquez, the new Schwantz versus Rainey. Uh, I think it's uh, it's very tempting to make that comparison because uh, I think we mentioned earlier in the show, four last lap, last corner showdowns in the past, uh, let's say, 14 months between both Marquez and Dovizioso, Schwantz and Rainey. There was a particular period in that golden age of 500s when they were going head to head on the final lap on several occasions and they were all ridiculously, brilliantly um, frantic and frenetic battles that we all love uh, to remember um, but I think it's maybe not quite right because well Davizioso obviously he would be Rainey Marquez said he would be Schwantz because he was a bit looser a bit wilder fell down a bit more um, I think Davizioso has some way to go if he wants to be remembered in the same level as, as Wayne Rainey definitely one of the all-time greats of the sport um, three-time world champion Davizioso hasn't mustered a premier class title Marquez on the other hand has mustered well five by uh, possibly by this weekend um, whereas Schwantz only managed the one I think um also, you have to take into the fact that Schwanson really hated each other, absolutely despised one another. Marquez and Dovizioso enjoyed a relatively cordial relationship by comparison. Um, well, not even by comparison, just in general, um, over you know this last uh, two seasons. Um, so we're looking for a, a more fitting con um, comparison. I think it would be uh, the new Roberts and Spencer. Uh, very good. Um, a lot in there, only about 20 seconds too long. Um, we just discussed the best World Superbike rider of all time for about <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> this is true. I mean, to me, it, I mean, it, to me, it seems, yeah, more like Spencer, and, uh, Spencer versus Lawson than, than Schwantz versus Rainey because, um, I mean, the comparisons between Mark Marquez and Freddie Spencer almost write themselves. Lawson was a much more... Uh, Lawson was basically the rider who invented sort of, you know, modern the modern approach to training and modern uh, approach to, to, to racing. And uh, it seems to me that, you know... Uh, Andrea Dovichoso has done something similar with his approach to racing. Uh, I think Mark said himself, you know, I learned a lot from watching what Dovi did last year and and applying that in his own uh, in his own approach. So uh, it's always interesting, sort of making these historical comparisons, and that they're they're inevitably wrong. They're always wrong because they're always a little bit different. Yeah, but I think what we can take from it is that uh, this sort of era, these last lap fights that we're seeing between Dovichoso. Marquez, you know, I think they will be maybe not with the exact same fondness because the, the hatred that existed between Schwantz and Rainey for so long did mark them out as, you know, there, there haven't been many rivalries that were that emotion uh, packed um, but I think, you know further down the line we will look back on this as, you know, a similar fondness these last lap encounters and, and you know, looking at Dovizioso, he's, he's building right now he's building for his championship challenge in 2019 so I think this is, you know, maybe only the midpoint of of what we're likely to see. I think this is going to keep going for, for some time. 
It, it's a good point about the hatred between Schwantz and Rainey. Do great rivalries need hatred to turn them from good rivalries to great rivalries? I don't think so. I think uh, if you look at, at, at Roberts and Spencer, um, they didn't hate each other. Uh, Red... Uh, Freddie Spencer's autobiography that came out last year, Feel, um, and the, the whole section on 1983, that memorable, legendary year between the pair of them, um, there didn't seem to be any hatred. There was a lot of anger on Robert's behalf after the outcome um, in Sweden when he felt that uh, Spencer had kind of, um, well, well, Spencer did run him off the track, essentially, um, before the, you know, coming off the back straight. Um, but... Um, I think there was also a good deal of anger at just the outcome, and um, that was that was obviously that hadn't been necessarily running all year. So I would say contrasting characters, contrasting riding styles, different backgrounds. I think all these things can add to a great rival. Obviously, if there's been some flashpoints and a good dose of hatred, that that adds to it. You know, the, the Biaggi Rossi um, you know, comparison there. I mean, you know, open confrontation where one of them's one of them is hitting the other one um, when they're queuing to get into the press conference. I mean, that's that's great. You know, it's proper. Uh, you know, sort of ringside entertainment. Um, that was that was a mosquito. Other, Neil. I mosquito. thought it was a mosquito. Yeah, it's definitely no. It's definitely a mosquito. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Right. I've had, I've had lots of black eyes from mosquitoes. Have you not? <laughs> I think like for, you, for you, me, you will win uh, the next good Northern Ireland, Steve. After uh, you, you're, uh, yeah, that, your first the, the Ray comment certainly going to come back to bite me whenever I go back up to Belfast. Yes, but I think that uh, for those famous for Belfast me, mosquitoes, those yeah. <laughs> They're well known over over a period of about forty years. Um, for for me, when you look at uh, rivalries, you don't need to have a hatred, but it certainly makes it a lot easier to sell. And uh, for if you're trying to generate interest or you're trying to just have a big storyline, it's always easier whenever you've got different writers always having different stories about what they're doing to to each other just to try and get them off balance and things like that and uh, as you said Neil there are some examples where there's that cordial respect and and almost a friendship but there's far more examples where it goes the other way agreed definitely and uh, you know David has been on the question asking Judy's um the past couple of minutes so now it's my turn to ask you a question David um what we were speaking with with Steve there, Jonathan Ray breaking all types of new records throughout this season. We also, in one of uh, the Superbike support classes, uh, saw another rider um, break a, a, or do a pretty, uh, oh God, sorry, uh, I'll put my teeth back in. Uh, we saw another rider um, uh, achieve a landmark result going back uh, to Magni Cura a few weeks ago. Anna Carrasco, the first female uh, road race uh, world champion. Um, do you think that this will open uh, motorcycle racing up to uh, female races of the future, David? Um, well, yes and no. Yeah, it depends on it depends on your time frame. Um, uh, it, does, are we about to be sort of um, uh, overwhelmed by a tsunami of fast women? Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the next sort of two or three uh, seasons because you need a pipeline of talent for uh, riders to come through. Um, uh, I think it's absolutely a unique achievement by Anna Carrasco and absolutely, you know, amazing outstanding to done it and also you know she took two uh, she took two wins but they were two absolutely superb wins uh with leaving no questions that she, that she deserved it what i think it will do is it it 
basically breaks the, 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 the this idea that it's impossible for women to uh, win world championships. And it's definitely going to inspire a lot of young girls who are racing now who we won't see, you know, challenging in world championship level in the next sort of like four or five years. But I think in 10 years' time, there's going to be maybe two or three really fast girls in um, in Grand Prix, maybe in World Supersport, World Superbike, um, on the cusp of actually breaking through and 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 creating a uh, creating a revolution. So it's not a it's not a revolution today, but it's a really big change. I think it's a positive development, and it's um, there will be a change, but change is coming, but it's coming in the future, and that is an, uh, one minute and forty seconds, which is <laughs> complete. Pathetic. fast of the rules. <laughs> I was going to say, once again, Dave, you fail miserably to work to length. But uh, I, I, like, I'd have to say, like, for, for all of us in the World Superbike paddock, when Carrasco won the championship, it was a momentous occasion. And I think everyone wanted to see her get across the line and take that championship. But what's going to be interesting to see what happens with her next. Like I talked to Kawasaki about what the plans are for her. And the plan is that she stays in the Super Sports 300 class. And for the life of me, I don't understand how that's good for anyone. I'd love to see Carrasco move up to a Super Sport machine or move back to Moto3 to show the lesson she's learned in uh, the 300 class. Because when she claimed those two wins, Dave, at Imola and at Donington Park, she was so dominant and she rode really well she was on the absolute limit the whole time and i'd like to see if she could do that on a moto 3 bike now to show that she has actually learned progressed and improved a lot over the course of the last two years yeah i mean it's been really interesting following spanish media how much um attention she's received and she's been really really good at uh, sort of exploiting the pr side of it um which is you know important it's it's also an important part of the, well the entire sport really yeah it's been a huge uh, thing over in spain i mean they've actually been showing the more the um super sport 300 races live as a result of her success at the start of the season and, yeah, uh, and she, I'm always she always on on her social media. There always seems to be sort of a clip of her being interviewed by uh, this TV person or that TV person. So, um, uh, and as I say, it, it's all about a talent pipeline. It's going to change. It's going to change things. But as you say, Steve, it would be interesting to see what the plan is from there. But there doesn't seem to be much of a plan from any of the manufacturers really for what happens after World Supersport 300. Well, the one thing about Supersport 300 to Superbike is a lot of riders just saying that the step up takes so long to learn that for some of the riders that have made that change, the lessons they learned in 300s not quite being uh, transferable to a Supersport machine straight away. I'm interested to see what happens next year because I, I think it looks like Maria Herrera is going to make a move up to a Supersport bike. She said all the way through this year that she'd prefer to be on a more powerful bike i think a bigger bike will suit her style more than what she's had on the 300 she actually came quite good at the end of the season when the yamaha got more competitive so it'll be interesting to see what she can do when she steps up scott derue looks like he's going to stay in the 300 class and once again he's a guy with plenty of grand prix experience and he'll do a third year in that class and i'd like to see it where it's we do need yardsticks you do need someone that you can measure different riders against everyone knows what level Daru was at when he was in the Grand Prix paddock but I'd like to see it where there's a, a bit of a change within the class because there is some talented riders in that I think, think Mika Perez that finished second in the championship looks like a real talent I'd love to see him on a super sport machine next year as well 
Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing about new classes like Supersport 300 is that um, it takes a little while to settle down because we saw this in the first year of uh, particular Moto2 when it was uh, such a big radical change. The first year was complete chaos and you didn't really know what was going on. It was very, very fantastic racing and it took like, you know, three or four years for the class to actually sort of shake uh, shake out and, 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 and take on a shape and so it helps to have some sort of continu- continuity in terms of riders. Uh, and you you also saw that with a lot of the changes in the uh, regulations with the Supersport 300 uh, class this year, that it was a little bit difficult to sort of almost follow what was going on because there was so much cha- uh, so much changes going on. So I think maybe it'll settle down a little bit uh, later on. And having a few riders who are in who's been in there for a few years, I think makes it a little bit that little bit uh, uh, easier to manage. Um, right, um, winners and losers. Um, starting off with you, uh, Steve, your winner, um, either from Argentina or from Thailand, whoever you like. Uh, I, I think, honestly, the big winner was just motorcycle racing. We went to Buriram for MotoGP. We went to San Juan for World Superbikes. We had two massive crowds. We had passionate crowds. And there's clearly just a, a good marketplace in both of those countries for more races that we know in Southeast Asia that there's obviously the potential to grow that market. It's huge for bike sales, but for actually having bike races, we've got the chance to really grow there for Argentina and South America. There's that potential as well. That's a that's a pretty good shout, really. That's uh, uh, hard to argue with that. How about uh, you, Neil? Who's your uh, who's your big winner? Uh, well, going back to Thailand, I would say the big winner has to be uh, Francesco Bagnaia, uh, who looks now odds on to win the Moto2 World Championship. He's been locked in a pretty uh, intense battle with uh, Miguel Oliveira throughout this year. It's been a great battle um, between two guys that I think are going to be really, really good MotoGP riders in the future. Um, and Bagnaia has just been in outstanding form uh, as a played in the second half of this year. Um, but, Buram was once again an example of him um, not just being ridiculously fast, uh, being very, very consistent. Um, it was an example of him showing a willingness to go toe-to-toe with Oliveira and to not be carred, or to not car in the face of Oliveira, maybe playing some mind games with him, trying to ruffle his feathers up, um, not just in the race, but also during free practice. Um, there was an incident where both of the guys found themselves on track together. Um, Oliveira put in a bit of a cheeky move uh, this was in FP1 on Friday morning and uh, pushed Banyaya slightly off track and uh, you know Banyaya rather than you know just get uh, you know shake his head and be frustrated he basically chased Oliveira down and returned the favour and uh, there were several instances in the first half of that race where he basically just went elbow to elbow with him and uh, rode clear into the distance and I think it was probably his, his finest showing in Grand Prix racing to date um, and it bodes very well for uh, Ducati in 2019 because uh, throwing him onto the GP18, onto basically Jorge Lorenzo's current bike, giving him Jorge Lorenzo's current crew chief uh, in Christian Gabarini. I think we're going to be looking at, uh, well, by Naya, you know, showing towards the front of the races um, in the second half of uh, next year, MotoGP, maybe uh, when we get to the flyaways. Yeah, I mean, definitely people are uh, uh, excited about Banyaya. Everyone I speak to is excited about Banyaya. Everyone was was excited about Banyaya after he tried the, I think it was the Aspar bike a couple of years ago. Mm, 16. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Also, uh, uh, I had a lot of um, 
Portuguese fans contact me uh, uh, completely outraged at the behaviour of Luca Marini and wondering why he hadn't been penalised. Um, <laughs> For having I, the audacity uh, to overtake uh, their I, man. I spe- Sorry? For having the audacity to overtake their man. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. And also for running wide, I think they they felt they should have had, you know, been been penalised by about six laps or something. Um, uh, But uh, yes, that was uh, it was clear that um, their thinking was perhaps a little bit clouded by uh, by um, uh, by support for their favourite rider. But yes, we shall see. Yes, I always, um, yeah, Olivera was it, asked after the race, you know, what can you do? And he just he shrugged his shoulders and he said, you know, it's really difficult to make a strategy when your main rival is this consistent. Yeah. So that was yeah. uh, as, as big an admission that uh, it's going to be a bit of a, an uphill task as uh, we've heard from him all year. So uh, that should be should be fun to see how that one pans out. Dave, what about you? Uh, big winner from uh, either Superbikes in Argentina or uh, MotoGP in Thailand? Um, well, I'm going to be incredibly, um, uh, I'm going to be incredibly boring and, and uh, go with Jonathan Ray just because, you know, they turn up to a new track and uh, he runs away with it. Uh, there was nobody capable of matching Ray in either of those two races. Um, he was sick in the uh, in race two. I think he hadn't sleep, you know, barely slept because of uh, food poisoning on the on the Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, and to still be able to come away with such enormous dominance is um, is a mark of uh, just how much better he is. Uh, than the rest of that class at the moment, um, uh, you just you can just see by measuring him against the against his teammates, he's much better than his teammates. And as Steve was saying earlier, he's been uh, so adaptable. Every time the rules have changed, he's just changed his riding style uh, just enough to keep the advantage he has. So I. It, it feels like he was out to prove a point this weekend, and uh, I think he pretty much did that and I think um, he has to win one more race to equal the um, most number of races in a season run one in a season yeah Doug Poland's got 17 wins in a season Ray on 16 so the Dublin Qatar gives him that record the Dublin Qatar also gives him the points record for a single season so he already holds that from last year but uh, for Ray he's looking just to to go out with a bang this year 12 in a row yeah, I mean, it's astonishing be... numbers, isn't it? Just that he's racking up. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I thought last year, you know, that couldn't be bettered, but he's proven once again this year that, yeah, there's no one, no one able to, to compete at that level. Yeah, and it's the consistency. It's the consistency which is what is so so impressive. I mean, you know, he, he never, it's like Marquez, he never has a bad day. Well, the one thing for Ray is if you look at his season since Imola, he's been really strong every weekend, but the first couple of rounds he had some problems in Phillip Island he really struggled with the tyre problems that were down there in Bury Ram he had a brake problem in the second race and then he obviously had the crash with Tom Sykes and Bruno as well but from Imola onwards once they really found a good solution for the bike he's been pretty much unbeatable and for the last 10 races obviously he's been unbeatable but uh, even before that with Bruno he probably should have won both races there Mm -hmm. as well Again, it's the strength of having a good team. It's exactly what you were saying earlier, uh, uh, Steve. Having a good team is what makes the having that stable team around. Everyone un- understands their job, knows what they're doing, uh, and it me- 
it means you know problem makes problem solving that much faster when everyone is sort of on the same page um that's our winners how about um how about losers uh steve steve for argentina give, give, give me one second to have a thing <laughs> well i'll tell you what we should go uh to go, go neil. Big who's, your, big neil. who's your uh, uh who's your big loser for the past couple of uh, races neil past couple of races or, or, or Thailand well uh, you know the past the, the last MotoGP race and then the last World Superbike race so uh, Thailand and Argentina uh, well, I was going to go with Rossi uh, because you know he lost out in that last lap fight with Maverick uh, Vinales' teammate um, the critical point of the season uh, especially when it looked as though he had the pace to fight for the race win all throughout free practice um, but I guess I'm going to have to go with Lorenzo um, because had it not been for the first lap crash at Aragon, we'd probably be looking at uh, Lorenzo having back-to-back podiums. Um, as it is, it's three non-scores in the trot now, and uh, his, his season's really fallen away after showing so well in uh, in the Czech Republic and in Austria. And um, yeah, it was just it was just downright bad luck in uh, in in Thailand. That was his undoing. Yeah, and I think also the question is what what effect that is because those sort of mechanicals, uh, riders, they don't mind crashing when they understand why they crashed um, because it's something they can fix. But those sort of mechanicals can take you, they can sap your confidence because, you know, there was nothing you could do. It just happened and um, you have to have faith that it won't happen again. Steve, you're, uh, do you have a big loser? I think there's one big loser from Argentina, and that's Yamaha. They really struggled in Villacom with the uh, Lowe's finished sixth in race two, and uh, I think in race one you had Van der Mark was eighth, Lowe's in seventh, and they really just struggled to be able to to get on the pace of what everyone else was able to do last weekend. Like we saw Fares on the podium, we saw Melandri on the podium twice, and the uh, top rack got a podium, but Yamaha just weren't quite there once the track uh, started to rubber in. And uh, for me, they were the big losers from the weekend, particularly for Vandermark, because with Davis having crashed out of race one, it looked like this could be the weekend, this could be the weekend where Vandermark was really able to close up a lot of points on Chaz Davis in the championship. They're obviously fighting for second in the standings. And instead, Davis goes to the last round with a pretty comfortable lead over Vandermark. So what went wrong with Yamaha? Was it just that the, the track didn't suit the bike or...? I think it struggled when you talk to the riders it struggled just with the with the track for one thing but I think one of the big issues they had was just that they don't have data because this yeah. is a new track for everyone and whether you're Kawasaki with Ray Sykes top rack even the likes of Taddy Mercado was strong through this week so the the Kawasaki was obviously working well the Ducatis were working well and again you've got Fares Melandri Davis all up at the front so when they've got that information, it gives them a big advantage because they're able to compare it with everyone else. If you're a Yamaha and you're struggling a little bit, you can't use Jakob Schmertz to really understand what's causing the problem on the Guandalini bike. So therefore, it's Lowe's and Vandermark and you can easily find yourself chasing your tail in that sort of an instance. Honda made a bit of a step as well at times over the course of the Argentine weekend with Gagne looked very strong through the weekend. Flory Marino had a good weekend. So... Yamaha just seemed to be one of the few teams that really just struggled to get to grips with the with the, the circuit in Argentina. 
yeah, Florian Marino had a, had a good weekend until he broke his leg, of course. Yeah, for uh, for Florian, it's uh, pretty pretty serious injuries as well with a fracture for the tib and fib, and he's obviously staying out in Argentina for another while just to recover from that. But it was a disappointment for him because he actually rode really well in the first race. Before we had spots of rain, he was running only a couple of seconds behind Leon Camier halfway through the race. Yeah, which is quite impressive, really. Right. Well, um, as for me, I think my biggest loser, it has to be uh, uh, Danny Pedrosa because he was so close to a win, at the very least a podium. Uh, he was closing on everyone. Um, he was getting quick. He was looking really, really strong uh, in the uh, in the couple of laps before, um, uh, before the crash. Strong enough to, uh, well to score a commentator's curse because what happened was he was you know starting to go faster and then because we were all paying attention to him we all um, we all noticed that he that he we all saw him fell off fall off sort of thing so that was difficult he also he seemed to be having just a better weekend than uh, than normal he wasn't struggling getting heat into the tires he was uh, he, he just seemed to be more into a rhythm than uh, than normally and you know he's got fewer and fewer chances to actually uh, to actually win another race before he retires to actually go out uh, on top rather than um, if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't win a race this year, or he doesn't sort of end with a couple of podiums, then this is going to be sort of regarded as a bit of a uh, of a lost year, I think. So uh, it was a it was a real shame that he uh, that he crashed out, and um, yeah, he he could have done a lot better. And this was um, yeah, this was a pretty big chance, I think, for a, for a decent result. Right, gentlemen, uh, I think that's about it. I think we've covered just about everything there is to cover in the world of motorcycle racing. I shall uh, thank you, Big Neil. <laughs> thank you, David. And thank you, Big Steve. Cheers, David. Yeah, sleepy Steve, I should think. You'll probably be, uh, be away for your bed soon enough. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, uh, I'm starting to struggle <laughs> and flag a little bit now. We're recording this just after I've got back from Argentina, so a long flight home and... Uh, now we're just getting into into that stage of the jet lag where it's probably time just to, to head to bed. Right. Okay, right. Well, thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to us. If you are not following us on the social medias, make sure that you follow us. That is on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. On Facebook, facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. Um, whatever you use to download this podcast with, make sure you rate us and give us a review. Um, it helps other people find the show. And um, if you think other race fans would enjoy listening to the show, then please, you know, passes around your friends as it were um and also a quick note we have started a patreon uh, if you want to help support the, the show financially which will uh, help us get to more events more races uh, help us uh, provide some exclusive material um, and do some interesting things uh, then you can uh, start sending us money sign up as a patreon with at patreon.com slash paddock pass podcast we still have uh, some figuring out to do but um, um, we hope to make it well worth your while and have some really interesting exclusive stuff for you to, uh, to, to listen to there. Thanks again for listening and goodbye. I love the way that that uh, short show went on for an hour and a half as well. We're, we're, we're really good at being able to stick to a schedule, stick to a plan. I definitely wasn't struggling by the end there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
Hello and welcome to the... Hang on, uh, settle myself. It's been a while since Dave... Yeah, it really has been a while, yeah. It's been a while since I've actually spoken to people.